we go. Well, hello and welcome everyone to today's webinar on GASB Update, the big three. This is a great opportunity for you to get the latest information about what's happening with regard to the GASB developments. And uh, David Bean has been very kind to update this presentation from what he presented at the CSMFO annual conference in January. So you're getting the absolute latest information here. This is the 21st year of the uh, coaching program as a member benefit for CSMFO and guided by the Career Development Committee under the direction of Lauren Nomura and a group of about a dozen volunteers who work on your behalf to identify topics like this and presenters of value to the profession. We're going to be covering three areas, uh, primarily the financial reporting model. That's going to be the major chunk of the material. And then moving on as well to cover the revenue and expense recognition and the disclosure framework. It's wonderful for CSMFO to have the opportunity to have David Bean back. He's uh, always a very successful and highly rated uh, presenter. He's the Director of Research and Technical Activities for uh, GASB. He also had experience early in his career uh, in public accounting and in government, so he uh, comes from an appreciation for what you're grappling with and how to address those topics effectively, and that's what he's going to be sharing with uh, us today. We're uh, also pleased that we have a color commentator. That's one of your own members who's helping to uh, provide a connection for you between what this uh, material and these developments mean for practitioners. And that's Craig Boyer, who's the assistant controller for the Auditor Controller Agency of Alameda County. And he has 15 years of local government expertise working at both county, city, and special district level. And he's been an active volunteer in CSMFO on the Professional Standards Committee and the Recognition Committee. So we really appreciate his service to the organization and to the profession. Uh, and I'm Don Maruska, the producer and moderator for these webinars. And I'm delighted that all of you have joined us today. Uh, we're going to look at the first polling question. And let me indicate that here. This is one on how many people are attending. We encourage you to have groups at your location because that gives an opportunity uh, for you to learn together and to discuss how you're going to apply the developments that are happening in the profession. So uh, we encourage your involvement. Uh, we're also, as you know, making digital recordings available of these sessions so that you can share them with people in your office who need to know this information. And that's available through the uh, handout uh, in terms of the printed materials and then in the digital recording that will go out to you, at least the link will go out to you uh, within the next day so that you can be uh, seeing and reviewing that information and sharing it with others. We have each polling question open for one minute, so we encourage you to respond in that time, especially if you're seeking the CPE credits, and you'll be getting uh, information from the CSMFO staff uh, as they review the attendance reports to see who qualified for those uh, credits. So we've uh, had the minute here, and we're going to take a look at uh, the groups. We've got 69% of you there on your own. We're delighted to have every one of you involved in today's session. Uh, others in groups of varying sizes, some upwards of 10. So uh, we're uh, pleased that so many of you have such a strong interest in this topic, well warranted for the importance of things that are happening in the uh, in this area of GASB updates. So with that, let me give the controls over to David Bean, 
and Craig and I will be coming back at various uh, times in the session to uh, help uh, provide additional commentary here. And here we go, David. Thanks so much for joining us. David, I think you're on mute. I can't hear you at the moment. I'm sorry. There we go. Um, this, you, you never want to uh, start talking when you shouldn't, and um, when you should talk, things don't always work out. Anyway, good morning. Welcome to everybody on the West Coast. Um, it's a, uh, I'd like to say it's a bright and sunny day in beautiful Norwalk, Connecticut, but uh, that's not the case. Um, I'm sure it's much better where you are. Um, as Don mentioned, today our focus is on the big three. Um, when we talk about the big three, um, again, financial reporting model, uh, but a key element to that is the uh, recognition concepts. Um, those of you who uh, uh, remember back several years ago, Gatsby started a, um, uh, a project on recognition concepts, and much of the feedback that we received really said, you know, yeah, we can we can understand the concepts, but how is this going to be operationalized? And uh, they wanted to, people wanted to see again how does this impact the debits and credits in practice? And so we we basically put the concepts statement on hold and started through a process of doing research on the financial reporting model. The C, you know, statement thirty four. It, it it's hard to believe. But Statement 34, we are currently recognizing its 20th anniversary. I'm sure that's something not to pop champagne over, but uh, it uh, it has been around for 20 years now. It was issued in, in June of 1999. Uh, so we re-examined uh, 34 and highlighted a, a few things that the, the board need to focus on. But uh, one item that uh, really wasn't a part of 34 was measurement focus and basis of accounting for governmental funds. And that is what held us up on the recognition concept. So today uh, we are going to not only talk about the re-examination uh, topics, things like budgetary reporting and management discussion analysis and financial statement structures, uh, but we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to many of your hearts, and that is what do we report in governmental funds? What are governmental uh, funds intended to convey? And um, we'll spend uh, you know, some time and, and give you at least the current board's thinking on that. Um, we're also going to spend some time uh, bringing you up to speed on our revenue and expense uh, recognition project. Um, this, for some, you know, the, their focus is on FRM or financial reporting model. Very little attention has been paid outside the hallowed halls of uh, GASB on revenue expense. And I guess uh, we want to use this as somewhat of a wake-up call. Uh, this is an extremely important project. Um, has the potential of at least changing the way we think about revenue and expense recognition. Uh, and we want to bring you up to speed about where we stand with this project, uh, potential direction of the board, and uh, certainly uh, encouraging your continued participation as we move through due process. 
Uh, we're going to finish uh, the presentation today with a brief update on the uh, disclosure framework. Uh, it's been, uh, again, almost 20 years since uh, since we looked at Statement 38 on disclosures. Uh, GASB is continually updating disclosures, uh, but this gives us the opportunity for the, really the first time since we issued Concept Statement Number 3 to um, look under the hood and say, what concepts are we using to decide whether we are going to disclose or not disclose, and how could those decisions of the board impact future standard setting for disclosures? Um, certainly a topic that uh, people are, are very interested in. So with that, uh, let's um, jump into the uh, Statement 34 FRM reexamination project. And talk to you about uh, you know where we've been and where we're headed. Um, I mentioned before the 20th anniversary. We actually started the reexamination project. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to believe, but it's it's been almost uh, uh, six years ago. At uh, how time flies when you're having fun. When Don mentioned uh, early on in my career, I look I worked in public accounting and in government and. Uh, I think that was just yesterday, but uh, it's uh, things like August 13, uh, 2013 that remind me that uh, time does fly. The reexamination, um, we spent um, two years um, with um, roundtables. We, we brought together preparers of financial statements, uh, auditors of financial statements, and users of financial statements, um, again, to discuss what worked, what didn't work as far as the implementation of Statement 34, and we held a couple of those roundtables uh, out in California, um, looking at not only governmental activities, but also business-type activities. Um, we took uh, the feedback from the roundtables. We went out and um, conducted uh, surveys, uh, again, trying to reach a broader range of preparers, auditors, and users of financial statements. Uh, we then took that feedback and said, okay, here are some potential areas that we can improve upon uh, with the, the financial reporting model. Um, those are our tentative conclusions. We, we need to take a look at these things, but just to validate uh, those findings, we went out and interviewed a number of people around the United States, including several stops, again, in California to get views from preparers, auditors, and uses of financial statements. Uh, based on all that research, um, we then brought the information to our advisory council, the National Council, um, or excuse me, the Governmental Accounting Standards Advisory Council, or GASAC, um, again, received their feedback, and they thought it was important to move forward uh, with this more narrowly scoped reexamination project. In other words, we weren't um, going to reopen whether we were going to have government-wide financial statements, uh, not going to reopen uh, measurement focus or basis of accounting for governmental fund financial statements, but concentrate on a few specific areas. And, um, and we're going to touch each of those areas uh, uh, today. So we, we formally added the project in uh, September of, of 2015, 
and um, we have issued an, an invitation to comment. Um, we have issued a preliminary views document, and the board now is in deliberations that will ultimately lead to an exposure draft. And again, today, what I'd like to do is just bring you up to speed about why we're looking at certain things, and again, what are the board's tentative conclusions. So, governmental funds. Uh, when we did 34, um, yes, we uh, we moved some things around as far as governmental funds. We put the focus on uh, major funds, you know, rather than fund types as far as the presentation. Uh, so we saw a, a you know a, a different view of governmental funds, but the underlying, the basic concepts used for for governmental fund accounting were not changed in 34. Uh, we clarified some things in interpretation six uh, about a year after 34 uh, was first issued, but again, didn't make fundamental changes. But at the same time, we knew that there were issues uh, with governmental fund reporting, the measurement focus and the basis of accounting. You know, we, we currently use what we refer to, and this is a term actually has been coined since the um, the establishment of the GASB, we coined the term current financial resources. And in some ways that's really confused a lot of people because um, you know if you grow up as an accountant and you're taking classes uh, that are focused on the private sector, uh, when we talk about, or when the private sector talks about current, of course what they mean is one year. You know, that is the current uh, period. Um, but that's not how it was applied, um, you know, with NCGA Statement 1, uh, which serves as even the current basis for how we report governmental funds today. So we had some issues there, kind of a mismatch in terminology used. We also use the term modified accrual. Well, modified by what? Of, of course, the basis was accrual accounting. Or as a friend of mine from Oklahoma would say, a cruel basis of accounting, but it, it truly is a cruel accounting. But we're trying to, you know, take us out of the world of modifications to accrual and, and put the emphasis back on, again, what are we trying to measure and what is it attempting to convey? Uh, because what we have today is effectively a lax, lack of conceptual consistency. We have all of the assets recognized in the governmental funds, with the exception of capital assets. But on the liability side, we only have those that are normally liquidated with expendable available financial resources. And again, clarification was provided on, on what the board meant by normally expected to be liquidated with expendable available financial resources in interpretation six. But Back when I was with GFOA, probably in 1984, um, I wrote an article on, I think it was eight different ways and, in which you could define expendable available financial resources. And since that time, I, uh, you know, looking back, uh, you know, 30, uh, 35 years, um, I could probably come up with another eight and in a good day, I could probably come up with another 18 different ways people have identified 
expendable available financial resources in practice. So lack of, of consistency, not only on our practical level, but lack of consistency on a conceptual level. There is no conceptual underpinnings for the current financial resources modified accrual basis of accounting. So we're trying to develop that framework so we can not only have more consistency as far as day-to-day -day transactions, but it also with a, a solid framework, we can actually take on more complex transactions in the future. Um, you know, for those of you who are truly GASB groupies, um, you'll uh, you'll note that uh, you know we've come to several issues: um, service concession arrangements, uh, derivatives, uh, where the GASB has essentially dropped back. 10 and punted on first down. In other words, we felt that uh, the model just really didn't provide the capacity as it was written uh, to help the board reach conclusions on if we have a derivative in the governmental fund, should it be reported or not, particularly if it's an effective hedge. Um, you know, what do we do if uh, we happen to have a service concession arrangement and somebody gives us a billion dollars up front, and that does happen with certain FCA agreements. Um, is that another financing source? Um, is it a deferred inflow of resource? Um, exactly what is it within the within the governmental fund environment? Uh, also, um, you know, there are people who say, well, let's let's get a, a framework established, but kind of keep the short term or near-term focus of, of governmental funds, other people are saying to us, you know, it's time to abandon that altogether. You know, we've we've made the movement with Statement 34, introduced accrual-based, uh, you know, economic resources uh, with a government-wide statements for governmental activities, um, but why do we have funds being reported one way and the government-wide statements being reported a much different way? Yes. There is a reconciliation between the two, but shouldn't they be on the same basis? So there are people who took, um, you know, that position. There are people who said, well, maybe we shouldn't go as far as economic resources. Uh, maybe we should be looking at total financial resources so that we can keep the current fund structure. But still, um, as we have seen, particularly based on, on our responses to due process, this is not an issue where we get complete, you know, agreement across the board. There are some things where people would say, uh, yes, we agree with you, Gatsby. I'm not delusional. That doesn't happen that often. Uh, but there are some things where they'll say, well, I may not be in perfect agreement, but at least we understand why you're heading this way. Uh, but this is an issue where we have people all over the board. You know, from please don't change things, keep things exactly as I know them today, to yes, I do see these issues that you're raising. We need to fix the model, but do it within the context of a current focus or a near-term focus or short-term focus. And then there's others who just say, you know, this is fundamentally flawed. We need to make significant changes to the model. Uh, what do you do in waiting? So um, we have the gamut. And uh, again, the board's made some tentative conclusions. 
Um, we're still debating some rather fundamental issues, and let's get on to what we've come up with. So, um, the idea, we've talked about the invitation to comment. We talked about the, the preliminary views document. Um, we, um, we've gotten a lot of great feedback. And uh, when we issue the exposure draft, um, we're expecting California to, and Oregon and Washington to be there front and center. Um, you all have played an important role in the development of GASB standards, and we hope that that continues as, as we move through our due process. Um, as far as feedback, I, I won't take you through all of the details on the feedback that we've gotten to date, but I think the key thing here is uh, there has been a lot of feedback, and it hasn't all been unanimous as far as, as views. Uh, one of the things I guess I'd like to point out that uh, we're not proud of GASB, but actually proud of you, uh, is we had 67 field test participants um, of the PV. They took uh, the board's preliminary views and said, okay, what would this look like if I applied in practice? What are the issues? What are the practice issues associated uh, with it? And you think, well, there's 90,000 governments out there, Bean. Why, why are you so excited about 67? This is a volunteer effort. You know, people are working on their, their comprehensive annual financial reports. They're working on their annual financial statements. They're working on their budgets. They're working on a multitude of different things. But yet, 67 governments took the time, made the effort uh, to go through this process and provide us with feedback. And I can tell you that feedback is absolutely critical to the, the success of any final statement. So uh, if you were one of those 67 volunteers, thank you. Uh, if you weren't, uh, there will be plenty of opportunities for you in the future to uh, uh, play a role in that process. So preliminary view, alternative view, the big tug of war. Um, Many times the GASB will issue a preliminary view document and it will actually be a preliminary view that all seven board members agree with. Um, as a, you know, a matter of fact, a lot of times we issue a preliminary view document is not because the board disagrees, but we, we know that it's a, a, a controversial document and we want to get your feedback. Uh, you know, we did that on fiduciary activities. We did that on leases. I mean, there's, a again, a multitude of standards over the years where we've issued a preliminary views document. But not only did we expect and receive differing views on the model, the board has also split. As a matter of fact, when we talk about the preliminary view of the board, there are only four members who support that preliminary view. Now, of course, that's the majority of the board. A final statement could be issued based on that, but Gatsby generally does not find itself in that position. So it truly is a tug of war, um, except we have four board members on one side. We have two board members on another side, and we have a third board member who doesn't support either view. Uh, if you've read the preliminary views document, you're probably asking yourself, okay, Bean, where is that view? And uh, because we had all three views expressed in the invitation to comment, 
we wanted to narrow things down and as part of our rules procedure, it takes at least two board members to present a alternative view in a preliminary view statement. So that we, we didn't want to find ourselves with three uh, models in the ITC and then have three models again in the preliminary views. We wanted to narrow things down. So that's why you see the preliminary view versus the alternative view in this document. So what is the preliminary view of the board? Uh, first of all, it's based on a short-term measurement focus. Um, we broke things into items that arose from short-term transactions and events and items that arose from long-term transactions and events. So how did we uh, define short-term? Again, a word that should be familiar to you is normally. But instead of saying normally expected to be liquidated, we said normally due to convert to or generate cash or require the use of cash entirely within one year from the inception of the transaction or event. Now, focus on normally. I mean, we are not sitting there with a stopwatch saying, well, now when we enter into this, are we going to receive cash uh, within one year or some other financial asset within one year? No, we, we step back and say, well, what is normal in the context of this transaction or event? And not normal for a government, uh, your particular government. It's normal for effectively all governments. Um, the reason for that, you know, I, I'm originally from the great state of Illinois. Uh, I can tell you what normal is normal in Illinois, where they have about $8 billion worth of accounts payable that have been sitting in desk for multiple years. Uh, what is normal for Illinois is not normal for governments on the West Coast. You pay your bills. So we wouldn't want Illinois saying, well, we normally don't pay these accounts payable, so they shouldn't be fund liabilities. Um, again, the rest of the country pays them, and therefore they are fund liabilities. So with these short-term transactions, we're going to recognize those when the transaction occurs. In other words, you know, your typical wages uh, we have seen governments in severe financial shape that would say, okay, we're going to take the uh, last payroll in June. We're not going to pay you tomorrow or, you know, or tomorrow as, as uh, you would anticipate. We're going to pay you two years from now. And uh, they'll say, well, two years from now, it's not going to be liquidated with available expendable financial resources, not a fund liability. Interpretation six put a stop to that by saying normal is in the context of all governments. This continues that process. Um, also, by looking out within one year of the transaction, um, essentially what it hopefully will do is that for most governments, you're not going to be sitting there trying to keep your books open because you have a an availability period of, uh, of 60 days or, or 90 days or you won't have multiple availability periods. I mean, it's basically is, do we expect if we got an accounts receivable at year end, you know, okay, when when that uh, levy went in 
or when we actually levy the, the taxes, are we, again, normally expecting to collect those within uh, one year? Answer is yes. We recognize the revenue. Same thing on the on the expenditure side. So, what about the long-term uh, items? Well, certainly those are things that, again, normally are due uh, to be paid or to be received um, and thus requiring the use or being converted to cash uh, within that one-year period. Again, we recognize items in this when they are received or when they are due. Um, so uh, in a case of a long-term receivable, uh, we're going to recognize that when it is effectively received. Um, a long-term payable such as a bond payable, um, we're going to recognize that when it's due, but it's effectively we're looking at bond principle because those are normally paid uh, you know, one year after the, uh, the transaction, whereas interest is not. And so that would be one change uh, that you would see in practice if this goes forward, is that you would recognize interest liabilities in the funds for, let's say, payments uh, that are due in July or, or August. Um, you know, normally interest payments are, are made every six months, so it could be due something stretching out for potentially the next uh, six months. Of course, that would you would only have one, if it's due six months from now, uh, you'd only have one day's worth of interest to accrue and it's likely not to be material. So, um, as far as operationalizing this, you could say, well, do I have to go through, do I have to survey every government in the United States uh, to figure out what normally is for transactions? Um, if the board moves forward with this approach, this you will leave to GASB. Um, in other words, we are going to uh, uh, to provide more specific guidance on, on what is considered normally. It may not drill down to every single transaction that you ever face, uh, but certainly there will be enough guidance there that you can analogize to. So things like, um, you know, uh, investments. We're going to say, well, normally investments uh, effectively are, are, are going to be due within a, a year. Uh, certainly we have long-term investments, but given the fact that investments are fair valued, um, and it was based on the fact that, you know, whether the government decides to hold an investment or liquidate an investment, that's based on a government decision uh, not necessarily based on a, a, a particular due date. Uh, so in that case, there was specific guidance saying, if you have an investment, it is a fund asset. Uh, but something like a receivable, long-term receivables, certainly will will provide some guidance there. Um, when we get into uh, items such as pensions and OPEB and claims and judgments and compensated absences, uh, will also provide uh, specific guidance in those areas, again, if if the board moves forward uh, with that proposal. Now, um, again, this is, uh, this is the alternative view. As I mentioned, two board members support this. Rather than looking at the term normally and trying to make an assessment of what all governments are doing, 
this is based on a, uh, the stated or contractual maturities of the assets or liabilities. So if you have an asset or liability that is, is due with one one year, uh, that is a fund liability. Uh, the prime example that supporters of this model uh, use is that uh, if we, you know, have a June 30th year in, and I realize if anybody is listening from uh, Washington, uh, you have the December 31st year ends, but for those with the June 30th year ends, if you have a bond payment that's due on July 1st, um, that should be a fund liability. But that also applies that if you have a bond payment due June 29th, the following year, that effectively is due in one year or less and therefore would be reported as a fund liability. Same thing with uh, compensated absences is what, you know, there is no state or contractual uh, maturity, but what's the best estimate uh, for compensated absences payouts in the next year? What's the best estimate for the payouts of claims and judgments in the next year? Uh, so that is what the alternative view is focused on is what is the expected outflows? It's almost a working capital approach. What's the expected outflows? What are the expected inflows uh, ex uh, during the next year? What is that estimate? Again, by looking at one year, fortunately, uh, you know, or I should say hopefully, uh, no one will be holding their books open for one year. So um, by asking governments to estimate that amount, um, we hope to see actually some improvement uh, in timeliness of financial reporting under either model because estimates will be made versus people again holding their books open for actual amounts. Um, now, this one year or less for the alternative view, there are some exceptions. Um, capital assets, if somebody purchases a capital asset, um, and it's going to be capitalized, well, it has more than one year useful life, they just said, that's not a fund asset. Post-employment benefits, OPEB pensions. Um, if you were a reader of the invitation to comment, you know that the supporters of this view try to develop something that um, would report a liability for pensions and OPEB, and based on the feedback that they received during the due process on the invitation to comment, they determined it's just not operational. You can't operationalize it. So they uh, um, they felt that you know they couldn't move forward with that. They exempted it. They also they also um, decided that asset retirement obligations again because of the payments. Asset retirement obligations uh, should not uh, be reported as a fund liability. So. With those three exceptions, though, um, they felt that uh, um, that was the only exceptions and everything else would be based on this one-year maturity uh, for both financial assets and financial liabilities. The AV introduced a, uh, a government-wide cash flow statement. Um, I can tell you, at least based on the preliminary board's uh, discussions, um, the board 
even if the AV is ultimately chosen, the board uh, is not expected, at least the tenant decision is not expected to move forward with any proposal for a government-wide cash flow statements. Now, I don't know if I hear the applause uh, out in, uh, in California or not, but uh, at least there probably is a, a sigh of relief um, that the board will not be considering that as part of this project. So Don, that brings us to our second polling question. All right, thank you very much. Uh, so we're interested in uh, your views about the preliminary view versus the alternative view, which do you think would better serve your community in terms of communicating information accurately and effectively to uh, your constituencies? So we ask you to take a moment to uh, respond. And, and while that's happening, uh, I know, uh, Craig uh, Boyer, you had uh, some comments about the challenges of um, sorry. working through the issue of what's current and what isn't, and sometimes the, the, the line there isn't so clear, especially on uh, transfers and other things. Could you speak about that for a moment? Yeah, so uh, so as David was talking about with normally, and and just thinking about where we're at in, in terms of, of these statements, I know a lot of us, like myself, are focused on what do I have to implement this year or what's coming up within the next year or two. And so a lot of us are thinking about fiduciary activities or leases, but um, now we're um, getting into the reporting model. And so um, as David was talking about, um, you know, if the model goes into effect as, as uh, being promoted in the preliminary views, we need to understand uh, what normally uh, means in terms of, of what's generally being done across government. So um, if if we're doing a practice that's that's not um, that's not common across most governments, uh, we may have to modify that. Okay, thanks. Uh, so uh, here are the responses. Uh, David, do you have a, a quick response? And then I know you've got a lot more material on the financial reporting model. Yes. You'll probably need to pick up the pace to be sure we're covering it. So uh, a, a quick reaction on the polling. Well, it's uh, the need more time to think about it is uh, I, I, I appreciate that fact. And uh, I hope that uh, they do take the time uh, because this is such a key issue in what uh, what the future of governmental accounting will all be about. And again, wanted to spend a big chunk of our time on uh, the AV versus the PV. Uh, we will pick up the pace and, and talk about some issues that may not have as much significance as far as the bottom line, but still is important for you to be aware of. And uh, Craig, I will uh, I will make sure that I uh, pause, take a breath every now and again and, and let you chime in. So uh, let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, the format of the financial statements. And again, with this notion of uh, short term, if the board moves forward with that, um, you know, there there is some formats that have been proposed to, to look at uh, current and non-current activities. And one of the things that uh, kind of was highlighting the PV, and the board hasn't re-deliberated this yet, but, uh, you know, it had kind of this big warning you know that uh, you know these statements would uh, would present a short-term view of the governmental activities. Um, you know to let people know that you know if you're looking at fund financial statements, this is not the entire picture. 
And there's all types of, of uh, references to short-term financial resources and short-term assets and short-term liabilities and short-term deferrals and, uh, and, and short-term financial resource fund balance. And the same thing with the flow statements, you know, inflows the short-term, outflows the short-term, net flows the short-term. We just beat that one to death and uh, probably a little bit excessive. Um, and uh, so I think you'll see some modifications here, but we do want the readers to be on notice that when you do look at governmental financial statements, governmental fund financial statements, you're not seeing the whole picture. Uh, don't think that you can judge the financial health of a government by looking at the governmental fund financial statements. What you're looking at is effectively a short-term view, you know, in other words, uh, and as uh, High Grossman, who who was a retired um, analyst at, at Standard Poor's, once famously said, without the short-term, there is no long-term, so short-term information certainly is vital, but it's not the full picture. So, um, are there, uh, Craig, do you have any comments when we look at this, uh, particularly the statement of uh, short-term uh, financial resource flows uh, and the reference to short-term. Any comments on that? Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, one thing I, I definitely want to say here is, as a numbers guy, I always appreciate when Gatsby uh, gives us uh, financial presentations or examples, because sometimes when you try to conceptually translate what's being put in the statement into how it looks practically, it can be a challenge. And so seeing um, information like this is always good. You know, the, the one thing that jumps out at me here is the fact that um, in some of, some of the things that are categorized are categorized as both short-term and long-term. Um, if you look in the example in particular, transfers in and transfers out fall into both categories. And so um, if you have items that um, fall into, into both buckets, you're going to have to um, start accounting for those so that you can report them separately. Right, and it's primarily tied to capital asset acquisitions and to debt service payments. So if you're making a transfer out to a capital project fund uh, to effectively supplement resources provided through bond proceeds, that would be a, a, a transfer out in the, um, the, uh, the non-current activities. If you're making a transfer out for debt service payments, that would be in the, in the non-current activities. So that's that's the the focus of that split so think capital debt if you have a transfer related to those items they would be presented separately from you know the basic operating transfers um, of government so thank you for that input um, another uh, point that the board uh, uh, provided some some uh, preliminary views on and we've actually have deliberated this further is how do we present operating versus non-operating activities for our proprietary funds or our business type activities and what the board has done is if, if you can remember back to, to uh, statement 34 um, there was some basic guidance there a footnote that uh, referred to cash flows but it said it was basically a policy decision of the government and therefore, you know, we could have potentially have 90,000 different answers um, to result in hopefully more consistency in financial statement presentations. The board decided to provide some definitions. Uh, when we looked at it, 
Um, the board actually found it easier to find what a non-operating item would be and has said, well, if it's here's the definition of non-operating and if it's not non-operating, then it's got to be reported as operating. It's really, uh, those of you familiar with the cash flow statement and, and statement number nine, that's basically what we did with the operating activities. We defined the, the three other activities and said, if it's none of those, then it's operating. So we're looking at, uh, for non-operating, we're looking at subsidies received and provided, um, and uh, revenues and expenses of financing, disposals of uh, capital assets and inventory, and investment income and expenses. Uh, those would all be presented as non-operating. However, should point out that, uh, you know, there will be things such as, uh, you know, if, if the BTA activity or the enterprise fund, if their primary activity is investing, uh, then of course uh, that would be operating. Uh, so there are certain things where you really have to look at the activity itself uh, to make the final classification. Now, um, we also added a new subtotal for operating income or loss uh, and non-capitalist subsidies. Uh, the board is uh, uh, trying to decide whether that non-capital subsidy should be expanded to just include all subsidies or whether the, the capital subsidies should be presented in a separate category. Um, deliberations are ongoing there. But when we talk about subsidies, and this is key, uh, these are resources provided by or received from another party or fund for the purposes of keeping a rate either higher or lower than otherwise would be necessary uh, for the level of goods and services to be provided. I realize in California, because of proposition that you can't subsidize the governmental activities by charging business type activities higher amounts. Uh, that does occur in other places around the country where uh, you will see enterprise funds subsidize the governmental funds so the fees are actually higher than would be necessary. Uh, but in many cases, for example, transit, the fees are actually lower than necessary and, and of course the transit authority or the, or the fund uh, receives subsidies uh, from both the federal government and, and the state government and those would be reported as non-operating um, revenue. And this is just an example of, of where you would see uh, gifts and grants uh, reported. You know, we used to have that big non-operating category, uh, but now it would be under the non-capital subsidies. Uh, and then you would strike a total, which would be a positive bottom line uh, for operating income or losses uh, and uh, the non-capital subsidy amounts. Um, Craig, do you have any comments uh, on that uh, uh, schedule before we move forward? Yeah, so I'm sure people with enterprise funds that are subsidized will be happy to, to see this potential change going on. I, I used to work for a transit agency uh, where the operations were substantially subsidized by um, operating grants that came in, and, and there was always a, a bit of frustration that we couldn't demonstrate that, that uh, the, those monies were directly supporting the operating expenditures with this new presentation. I think that will be clearer than it was in the past. Great. Thank you. Let's uh, move quickly on to uh, budgetary comparisons. Um, 
in uh, statement 34, uh, we basically came to the fork in the road and we took it. Uh, in other words, we said that budgetary comparisons can either be presented as part of the basic financial statements or as part of required supplementary information. The, the problem, of course, with that fundamentally is that RSI is required. So how can something be RSI but still have the option to be presented in the basic financial statements? Either RSI or it's not RSI. Um, in the preliminary view, uh, we we basically said that uh, those uh, those should be presented as RSI, all budgetary comparisons. And that's actually what in practice, uh, based on our survey results, um, you know, a large majority of governments currently do. Uh, they present their budget to actual uh, schedules in RSI. So there is, uh, based if this proposal goes forward, there would be no option to present it in the basic financial statements. The board just finished deliberations um, at its June meeting and decided that there should continue to be, or there will be, I should say, required variances for both the final budget to actual and also the original budget to final budget. That was uh, uh, the staff actually proposed that that um, variance be dropped and uh, uh, the board uh, felt that it was so important, you know, so that people could see what modifications were made during the year uh, that uh, they felt that there should be a variance column required. And again, RSI required, including the format. Okay, we're going to move to polling That brings us, Don, to polling question number three. Yes, yes. So uh, this is actually a, just a test to see how well you're listening. Um, and so uh, click off which do you think is the right answer here. And while that's happening, we had a question come in, and we also had a comment and a suggestion. Um, the question was, it looks like, uh, this is from one uh, audience member, that it looks like you're moving really towards trying to be more accrual-oriented uh, with the preliminary view. Why didn't you just go to full accrual accounting as your recommendation? Okay. That's, um, well... That's certainly something that the board uh, actually just, again, re-deliberated um, in June. Um, the board felt that based on user needs, that there is a, a, a need for, for, there still is a need for short-term information. And effectively, um, and this, this point can be debated. You know, this is, uh, you know, accounting is an art, not a science. And uh, because of that, there, users still have a need for information related to liquidity. Uh, some people say, well, that could be handled through cash flow statements, but there was a, the board felt and, and, and users felt that, um, uh, wow, this is, the, the, we need to, we need to tune people in uh, based on the results. And I apologize, I'll, I'll address the results of the poll and then uh, I'll come back to this question. Can budgetary comparisons still be in the basic financial statements? Uh, there's 51% of you got it right. <laughs> uh, the answer will be, well, I guess it's the question, can they still be? Currently, the answer is yes. Will they be under this new proposal? The answer will be no. 
So maybe some of you were trying to trick me with the answer saying, well, what about current practice? Uh, but uh, to go back to the question, um, they, they, the board felt strongly that there still should be information presented on a, a short-term basis, that governments budget on a very, very differently across the, the country and to provide a standardized measure of short-term working capital um, was key to, to providing a full picture of the government's financial position and results of operations. Certainly, um, there are some that are concerned that it doesn't provide the full view. They've argued, uh, uh, as some people would think convincingly, other people would say, yes, it's convincing, but the trade-off is you lose the short-term information. Um, and in the end, at least at this point, uh, the board felt that um, uh, that short term is still essential information for the basic financial statements. But uh, as I said before, Don, that, uh, you know, differing views and obviously we're hearing differing views here. So to um, kind of wrap up our uh, our discussion on uh, the financial reporting model proposals. I just want to spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about management's discussion and analysis. Um, for those of you uh, who are preparing annual financial reports, I always like to ask the question of, well, how close to midnight on the night before you issue the report do you spend writing the MDNA? Um, and uh, usually I get some very nervous laughs, you know, because they think, oh, you've caught me. You know, yeah, I'm sitting here the night before and I'm feverishly working away on the MDNA. And all I can say is in reading those MDNAs, it shows. You know, it, uh, I mean, I realize you're, you're overwhelmed, you're overburdened, uh, but this is one way, one important way that you can actually um, communicate to a broader constituency. You know, is John Q or Jane Q public ever going to read the financial statements? Uh, not likely. Uh, but if we're trying to communicate with people who have an interest in government but may not be a trained accountant, this is the mechanism. And as a matter of fact, the board deliberated, you know, who should we be directing your the MDNA to? And the board clearly came down on the side of, well, it should be the broader uh, types of users described in, in uh, concept statement one versus the more narrow type for the basic financial statements and the, you know, the statements and the notes in con three. Con three talks about knowledgeable uh, people that are knowledgeable uh, about government. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the users are saying in, in concept statement one, you know, there's a recognition that there's different levels of knowledge and sophistication. And uh, we should have reports that are understood by those that may not have a detailed knowledge of accounting. And again, MDNA is the mechanism. So um, what are the changes uh, that the board will be proposing in the exposure draft? Number one, end Groundhog's Day. Uh, in other words, people writing the MDNA, they they write about a change in the, you know, as it relates to government wide, then they write about the same change in the funds, then they write about the same change in the uh, budgetary comparisons. Uh, we're saying discuss it, 
as it relates to government-wide and make a comment that it applies, this same thing applies to all the, the basic financial statements so that we're not seeing a duplication. Um, there's also been some discussion about taking, since we're moving all of the, all of the uh, budget actuary comparisons to RSI, remember that, all going to RSI, also talking about moving the MD&A portion to RSI and present it back with the budget to actual schedules. Jury's still out on that one. We'll see where the board ultimately ends up, but there could be also a change there. The other thing that uh, uh, really came front and center during all of our pre-agenda research was that uh, left to their own devices, governments really didn't have clear enough guidance on the last section of MDNA, and that's currently known facts, decisions, and conditions. Uh, so the board, again, being RSI, felt that it, maybe some additional guidance uh, would be helpful there. So it's identifying areas such as economic data that relate to the government, um, changes in subsequent years, uh, adopted or approved budgets uh, that, again, would be of value to the readers of the financial statements. Actions that the government's taken related to post-employment benefits, uh, capital asset improvements, long-term debt. In other words, subsequent events, you know, highlighting those rather than having someone trying to dig through the notes and trying to find subsequent events, highlighting those significant facts in the MDNA. And then finally, in California, I know that you can certainly understand this, but what have other governments done to you? You know, what has the state done lately that's going to impact the finances uh, on local governments in California? Uh, what actions have they taken uh, after the reporting period that, uh, that could affect uh, the government's financial position? Uh, so those things would be highlighted in currently because they're currently known and facts, decisions, or conditions in which you'll be operating uh, in future periods. So that is at least proposed to be a bit clearer guidance on what's in the MDNA. Um, Let's just stop for finally, a moment there just very uh, and I know Craig sure. had some experience uh, to share. Uh, oh, in I'm sorry. How they've been doing MDNAs? Yeah, uh, thanks, Don and David. So, so yeah, my thought here is I, I'm sure I'm guilty just like everyone else of you know I want my final numbers before I do my MDNA. Um, a couple things that, that we try to do on our side to, to mitigate the, the last-minute nature of that is, is um, we utilize a lot of the variance analysis that we provide for the auditors during the course of the field work to, to provide analysis on our numbers. And then we have a template um, that picks up all of the, the variances for every category. And if they're not significant, we hide them. If they're significant, we keep them on on the template and and we provide the analysis that way. So in that sense, you know, we, we try to use those tools to to be ready to do the MDNA, even though we know it's the compilation of it's um, likely going to happen um, towards the end there, just due to the timing of finalizing the numbers. Okay, and we've got an interesting comment yeah, from one of our audience members where they're uh, saying that they use the MDNA kind of as an executive summary that encapsulates uh, encapsulates everything that uh, you know a reader might need to know at a high level and this felt like it might run in conflict with you know the uh, direction not to duplicate do you have a quick comment about that before you go on david 
It, um, I, you know, again, well, I guess what I'm trying to um, determine what what could conflict. I'm, I'm not well, clear on that. Saying is that they, they provide the commentary in all the different places, and then the idea is that they okay. bring that up into the MDNA, assuming that people might not read the other things, but they would read the MDNA and want to kind of have an encyclopedic coverage there. Yeah, and that and that could potentially uh, conflict, but but hopefully they can they can still take the same approach, but um, essentially present it as 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 one. And one of the things that we're going to be doing is providing again another example. I mean, we've had 20 years of experience here now uh, with Statement 34, and we're going to provide a an updated example. A lot of things have happened over the last 20 years, and a lot of new standards. And um, so we're going to update the example and I think provide a bridge for that executive summary and how that can be presented without duplication. So hopefully we'll provide some information there. The other thing I was going to mention is what I always encourage people to do is um, a lot of times you'll sit down with your auditor and you'll, you know, they'll do an analytical review of the financial statement and ask, you know, we've got these significant variances here. Why did this occur? And I um, I always encourage people to tape that discussion, uh, not because you want to have something that you don't trust your auditor with, but you can actually play that tape back and um, help you write the MDNA because your explanation to the auditor of why things have changed uh, could very well be used in explaining the same variances uh, to your financial statement readers. So with that, um, let's just uh, close out the conversation on financial reporting model with some other uh, tenor decisions uh, that are going to be presented in the exposure draft. Uh, first of all, there was a proposal to eliminate this uh, note disclosures for major component unit presentations in the PV. The board has tentatively agreed to carry forward that proposal for the exposure draft. Uh, there was also a proposal in the PV to present a schedule of government-wide expenses by natural classification. And this would be presented in supplemental information, not RSI, but SI. Um, kind of like the characters on Game of Thrones. You know, everybody's a little bit good. Everybody's a little bit bad. But in the end, they all die. And uh, that's essentially what happened to this schedule. It died. Uh, the board has tentatively decided not to carry that forward uh, to the exposure draft, even though there's a lot of good in it. Um, but uh, it just, they, they felt that with all the other changes being discussed, this wasn't uh, the appropriate uh, time or place. So where do we head? Uh, what's next? Uh, the next thing is an exposure draft. Uh, the board is tentatively scheduled to issue the exposure draft in June of 2020, next year, June of next year. Uh, YSA is expected. Again, four to three vote. I was talking to, uh, to Don and Craig before the session and saying that I, I'm involved today in uh, an orientation for a new board member that uh, with that four to three vote, one of the four was David Sundstrom from California. And David is retiring from the board at the end of this month. Uh, so our new board member, Carolyn Smith, uh, she is uh, 
One of her challenges will be at the July meeting is to make a decision, uh, at least a preliminary decision related to AV versus PV. And uh, so please, uh, for those of you, there's a, a, a link to our website uh, that gets you updated on, on the board's deliberations. Uh, please uh, follow, uh, we're on YouTube. Uh, you can actually watch Gatsby meetings if you uh, are absolutely uh, in, you know, a, an insomniac and uh, you need to go to sleep, uh, click on uh, YouTube at three in the morning and we'll be there uh, ready to watch. Um, so please pay attention, uh, keep informed, stay informed and, uh, and let us know your thoughts. Um, that brings us to polling question number four. Right. Thank you very much. So here we are. So when is it that the exposure draft is going to be coming forward? Uh, factual question here. Uh, and let me just check in on a few other questions that have come along the way here. Oh, one suggestion, and I think this is a theme that I'm hearing from comments, is that people really, and, I, and Craig shared this with you as well on behalf of the membership, the value of having examples. And this uh, person also goes a step further in saying, you know, it'd be really valuable to have a chart where PV and AV are side by side on critical items uh, to help people get their heads around this. That might have been, might be a way for some people to uh, be able to formulate a better point of view uh, about uh, these choices. No, that's an excellent suggestion. If uh, and 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 likely given where the board is uh, when we issue an exposure draft, um, there's likely to be an alternative view for the exposure draft, and that is something that that I will raise with the board to see if um, they're willing to consider putting a, such a chart together. If it's not in the document, uh, maybe as supplemental information. Okay. So we've got at least 66% of the people uh, listening. So that's good. All right. Glad to great, hear that. Great. And thanks for your responsiveness to some All right. the membership about uh, how to go forward with these efforts. It's great. Uh, so uh, let's move on to your, your next topic here. Very good. And uh, recognizing uh, our time, I just wanted uh, to stress to you the importance of the revenue and expense recognition process project. It, um, We've really broken this effort down into three categories. Um, first of all, how should revenue and expense transactions be classified? Um, when should it be recognized? And then finally, how should it be measured? Um, for those of you who have uh, been following our discussions, know that uh, we really have looked at some basic model assumptions. Uh, first being inflows or outflows are, are equally important. In other words, uh, matching, the matching principle, whether you look at the traditional private sector matching or kind of the reverse matching, matching revenues with expenses instead of expenses with revenues that you sometimes find in government, that matching is debt Matching has been dead for about the last 40 years, but yet people still think in terms of matching principles. Um, that has gone by the way of both the FASB 
and the GASB's conceptual framework. So inflows, outflows, equal importance of the, the research. One does not necessarily drive the other. Um, they should be classified uh, independently and, and not in relationship uh, to each other. Um, they, when we look at inflows and outflows, we should look at them from governments being an economic entity, not an agent of the citizenry. Certainly, we're an agent of the citizenry from a, a policy standpoint. But from a financial reporting standpoint, if we said everything was an agency relationship, all we would report is, is assets equals liabilities. Um, and certainly, there are inflows and outflows associated with governmental activities. The last two, uh, based on our recent task force meeting, we just had one uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we will probably combine uh, these two in, in some way. But uh, effectively, um, if you're looking at one government and they have a, a liability or one government, they have an asset and, and it's an intergovernmental transaction, um, they should be on a symmetrical basis. Uh, now, we realize the, the great books of the world uh, may not always balance, uh, but at least in setting standards, we should not have a different recognition for revenue uh, than we have uh, for expense recognition. So those are some of our basic assumptions uh, that we've used. Now, um, those of you who read the invitation to comment, um, know that we we actually presented two basic models. We had an exchange non-exchange model, and uh, which is kind of the traditional model that we have today. That we explain, you know, uh, what is an exchange transaction, equal value, near equal value for exchange like. We talk about non-exchange transactions being well. If it's not exchange, then it's then it's non-exchange. Um, but there has been a lot of problems in practice with that. And uh, the FASB and the ISB just issued, uh, not just, uh, a couple of years ago issued a standard. Uh, you may have heard of Topic 606 on revenue recognition. And it changed how the private sector thought about transactions. Um, from a, instead of looking at, um, you know, has an exchange taken place, we're looking at, is there a performance obligation associated with this revenue? And if there is a performance obligation, well, we shouldn't recognize a, uh, a revenue until that performance obligation is fulfilled. And so that gave us pause and said, if we're gonna be looking at revenue expense recognition, should we be looking at a, an, a performance obligation, non-performance obligation model? Um, Results were mixed. People liked a little bit about this, a little bit about that. We found that both models carried a lot of baggage, uh, particularly the exchange and non-exchange. If you, if you try to match up our statement 33, which the underlying guidance holds up, but compare it to GASB statement 62, where we pulled in some of the old FASB guidance on, uh, uh, on exchange, transactions you know and you put together as as a bridge well the bridge doesn't quite match up and uh, so we see a, a, a effectively a fatal flaw there um, 
but the fatal flaw doesn't necessarily drive us to a private sector answer as uh, the result of a, a performance obligation. So we tried to take somewhat the best of both, and that's what we're we're working on. And um, what we're calling it is the AB model. You know, so it's a it's a model without labels. Uh, we do have a category A and a category B, but we don't call it exchange, non-exchange, performance obligation, non-performance obligation. And the uh, the idea behind this is that category A of the AB model, um, it has two flows. Uh, we have effectively it's something for something. Uh, we, we have an acquisition coupled with a sacrifice. But you notice that the word value isn't there as an equal value. Uh, you notice that, uh, you know, that we're not asking, uh, you know, to us to measure uh, whether costs are being recovered. What we want to know is, are there two flows or not? Then we we ask ourselves, okay, is there some type of valid or or binding arrangement, uh, such as a contract, an agreement, uh, interlocal agreement, something uh, that is first of all economically viable and also uh, that's enforceable. And this could be a, a a verbal agreement, it could be a written agreement. But if that's the case, we continue down the category A path. If it's not the case, we go to category B. Then we say, is there rights and obligations associated with that? That's the first question. If there's a right, but no obligation, such as a tax, goes into category B. Then we say, okay, if there's rights and obligations, are they of equivalent terms? And uh, what you what you may find is, uh, you know, for for things that uh, for some grants, uh, they're not equivalent terms uh, for uh, some donations. They're not equivalent terms and they would go to category B if they are equivalent terms. Um, you know, then we we basically say we're going to recognize this on a category basis. And in other words, we're going to recognize the revenue as we have fulfilled our obligations. And uh, if not, we go to category B, we're still, we, what we've been primarily doing right now is working on classifications. We've looked at thousands of transactions, literally thousands of transactions and said, can these two fit uh, within these two categories? And, and so far it, it has held up, but it still hasn't been exposed as part of due process. And that's where you are going to pay, play such an important role here. So as we move forward with this document and we're planning on issuing a, a preliminary views document uh, in May of next year, uh, we need your input. Uh, we're going to make a call uh, for field testers. Uh, we're going to ask people to, to try this classification model out. Over the next several months, we're going to talk about specific revenue uh, and expense recognition criteria. We'll then finish uh, our discussions uh, by looking at measurement and uh, how these transactions should be measured. Uh, then we'll start the development of the PV again with the goal of having this ready by, the, uh, by May of 2020 
for your review and input. And we will have public hearings on this and we will come to the West Coast and uh, to hear your views. So that brings us to uh, polling question five, Don. Okay. So uh, we'd like to see how closely you've been uh, tracking the discussion here uh, and uh, what's the right answer to this question so that you know what's next here on, on this topic. And I know we're, we're coming up next, uh, Craig, on the topic of uh, disclosure framework. And I was wondering if you, while we're waiting for people to respond to this question, uh, if you could just say a couple comments about uh, the, the importance of the format of disclosure and, and just some of the things you wanted people to listen to as, your, as David describes what's coming up in that topic. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that that everyone uh, acknowledges with disclosures, with every new statement that's issued, they feel like the disclosure statements uh, get larger and larger. And so I, I think uh, we're always looking for ways to to um, to, to make that as efficient as possible. And, and I, I think one way that uh, that um, is a good way to look at that is to look for opportunities to convert narrative into tables or graphs or charts. Um, it's usually uh, easier for a reader to absorb the information that way, and it tends to reduce the page count and disclosures. Okay, great. Yeah, maybe as uh, people go forward with these efforts, uh, there'll be an opportunity within CSMFO, as people are always very good at sharing, uh, early examples of how that's being done. So how did our audience do, uh, David, on answering the question? Uh, the comprehension is dropping off a bit. Uh, uh, we are issuing a preliminary views document. So some people might have heard the word invitation to comment and uh, chose that, but uh, we should have had 100% on preliminary views. But let's, uh, let's move on in our uh, remaining, um, say, five minutes or so. Uh, I do want to talk about the disclosure framework. Craig makes some excellent points. Again, focused on knowledgeable financial statement uh, readers. That's the board's uh, preliminary view on that. Uh, what we are keyed in on is what is the uh, characteristics of essential. We say that we provide information that's essential to a user's understanding to, to make decisions and to assess accountability. But how do we determine whether something is essential or not? And what we have preliminarily decided, and, and this, is, uh, this is key here, is that uh, if information is already uh, provided in a note, because we will go be going back and looking at all the notes, um, are users actually using it as part of their analysis? You know, if, if, if information is, is not being used, and, and this is not just a, are you using it? Well, yes, because people like everything. We're going to ask, how are they using it? You know, they say, well, for liquidity purposes. Then we're going to go down to that third level and say, how are you using it to determine liquidity? So this is probably the first time in the history of governmental accounting, at least, that um, we're really... Not you know we we appreciate uh, the efforts that the users uh, put into due process uh, for the GASB, but but we're going to ask the tough questions because we do recognize you know as a former preparer and former auditor myself, preparing notes takes time. 
And uh, what we want to make sure of is that the cost of presenting that information is actually justifies, or I should say the benefit that the users are getting actually justifies the cost in, in uh, presenting that information. So uh, we're going to say, are you using it? If new information, if we're looking at new information, we're going to be asking kind of the same type of questions, but again, okay, this is the first time you've seen it. It's like putting a computer in front of somebody in, in 1920. You know, if you put a computer in front of somebody and say, well, how do you use it, you know, and you just left them to their own devices, they may never know. But if you actually showed them how they could use it before the Internet days, um, they could determine whether it's going to be valuable to them. So we're going to take them through exercises to see uh, could this information be of value to them. But again, raising the bar much, much higher than uh, than we have in the past as far as uh, what is essential uh, to a user's understanding. So uh, we expect in February to have a uh, a due process document out uh, on this uh, particular uh, uh, proposal. Again, here's the characteristic A, characteristic B for you. And um, we want to get your input and we will certainly get the input of, of users of financial statements as we move forward. And once we have the concept statement in place, then we start the long and somewhat arduous process of going back and looking at all the note disclosures. Now, I wish that uh, I could promise you that we are going to cut the notes. I'm always reminded of one of our former board members, the uh, late Ed Klasny, who this is Pre 9/11, he uh, he brought a machete on an airplane. He actually put it in the overhead band and brought it to a board meeting. Brought the machete out and said, "We're going to cut the notes." Um, boy, today's world, we'd all be frightened to death. But uh, uh, but he said, "We're going to cut the notes," and that was part of the statement 38 process. What happened? We added notes. So, um, you know, I can't make promises, but I can tell you that bar has been raised higher. When we issue this due process document in February, if you agree with this approach, let us know. If you disagree with us, please let us know. Please let us know what kind of improvements we can make uh, to the conceptual framework first on which to base future standards related to notes. Now, uh, with that, uh, my one minute that I have remaining, uh, there are a lot of opportunities for you to, uh, to provide GASB with feedback uh, over the next several months before I come to speak with you uh, next February. Um, Subscription-based IT arrangements and EDs out, same thing. We just released an ED on public-private partnerships. Before the end of this month, we're going to have EDs on deferred comp plans, those 457 plans. Uh, we're going to have an omnibus statement out covering a number of different topics, including asset transfers. The secured overnight financing rate, we actually may move that exposure draft up um, as uh, the transition from LIBOR in London Interbank Offering Rate to SOFR uh, is moving along. We just issued, uh, posted up uh, earlier this week, a uh, implementation guide on fiduciary activities. Please don't forget that one. And then finally, in August, we'll have an implementation guide final coming out um, uh, on leases. So with that, 
John, I'll turn things back to you. We'll ask, answer any final okay. questions and um, go on to final polling. Super. Thank you so much, David. And you can see uh, from all the work that Gatsby's doing and David's central role in that, why he is so busy and why we're so grateful to him for his generosity of his time in working with CSMFO and its members to help you get involved. Uh, we're going to be covering a number of, of topics here as we go along, and I wanted to just bring our uh, our color commentator, Craig, back on uh video here and we're going to be discussing a few things there are resources that uh, David has outlined for you places you can go to get more information about the things that are happening encourage you to do that we also have post webinar discussion questions uh, about you know how you are planning for these changes in your agency's accounting uh, what input you want to make on uh, proposed accounting and reporting changes uh, we encourage you to have some discussion about this so that you really thinking forward about what you want to do with the information that you've received today. Uh, we also have the contact information uh, for our presenters and want to uh, ask you a, a key polling question here. And I'm going to also engage uh, Craig here in a moment about a couple of reactions to things that came up today. But we'd like you to click off as many items on this list as you or your agency got value from in today's webinar. We appreciate that feedback. It's an opportunity for us to acknowledge to our presenters um, the value delivered. And we appreciate the, your uh, feedback. And there's a post-webinar survey that we'd like you to respond to as well. But I'd like to come back to an invitation that you made, David, uh, for people to uh, uh, actually be uh, experimenting with these uh, approaches and so on. Uh, I'm wondering, Craig, have you ever done that in, in any of your agency roles or know of people that have and could comment about, you know, what the what the experience has been on the user's end of, of being uh, one of those experimenters with new statements? I have not directly participated in any of, of GASB's uh, um, experiments for for testing out statements but but I will say just to reemphasize the point that David made throughout his presentation that um, the topics that were presented today are at a stage where Gatsby's still looking for our input and I think a lot of us wait until the statements issued and then we really scrutinize it and find things we don't like and, and at that point it's often too late to get things changed but um, right now if there's items in there that that um, don't make sense the way you do things. Now, now is a good time to to raise those issues. And David, could you help? Yeah, and as far as example, you've, you've got the uh, uh, revenue and expense uh, recognition opportunity coming up. What do you think might be, you know, your rough estimate of what would be involved if somebody was going to be one of your test sites for that? Uh, what incremental effort do you think that would entail? Do you have any even wild guesstimate or just description of what that might entail so people could decide if they want to step up? Sure. Uh, just just quickly, I, one of the one of the advantages of participating in the field test is that we we hold a, a number of teleconference with participants where we actually go through and explain the standard in detail to make sure that everybody's on the same page, but also to a answer questions. And, you know, they, they have the ability to uh, to answer or to ask GASB staff questions and, and effectively be able to get on the same page with the other field test participants. I think that that's one of the, the big takeaways is that you ha actually have a, a leg up 
on the on the implementation of, of the standard as the board moves forward. Um, depending on and again, this is a this is a massive project. So uh, depending on uh, um, we we may slice and dice this. We haven't come to any final conclusions yet, but um, it it can take you know uh, up to 40 hours worth of work to to participate in one of these field tests. Um, again, we're not asking people to do precise you know calculations, but we are asking them to put enough work in to 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 see what kind of efforts involved and also what kind of problems they foresee in implementation because we'd rather get out in front of the issue rather than Craig says having someone read the document you know after the fact and then say, "Well, have you thought about this okay well, great, thanks for that insight. Well, we can see from the polling results here, and these are some of the highest ratings we've ever gotten for webinars, so David, you hit it out of the park once again. Appreciate that, and uh, we want to encourage people to uh, do the uh, post-webinar -web uh, survey. We're especially interested in topics that people would like to have. You're, you're a major source of input on topics of interest, and we welcome that uh, participation, and I'll be getting an automatic email out to you when the digital recording is available so that you can share it with others and uh, find the materials in the presentation uh, PDF and explore these uh, topics uh, further. We have an upcoming webinar on the reserves. Uh, GFOA is helping us with a model about that. You'll be hearing examples of applying the model uh, so that you can uh, use a thoughtful analytical approach based on your own risks in your uh, agency for uh, what level of reserves that you need. So I encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, it's coming up August 1st. So now I'd like to just uh, turn in our closing moment here, just a, a continuing theme I'm seeing in the comments here. Uh, as you come forward with more material out of GASB, people are really asking for more and more concrete examples to help them see exactly what this would mean. So thank you for the several that you included and want you to know that there's an even larger appetite among the audience for that information. So just a closing uh, quick thought uh, from you, uh, David, and then from Craig. and. We'll conclude today's session. Well, thank you again. Thanks for the opportunity. I always appreciate uh, the time that you put in to, to listen to um, these webinars. And uh, please participate in due process. Uh, remember, uh, GASB hasn't given up on you, so don't give up on the GASB. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Craig. Yeah, th thank you for uh, allowing me to add my commentary today, and and I also thanks to David to, for sharing uh, on these these uh, items at this time. I, I think it's always good to get out in front of these things and start thinking about them and how they're going to affect our agencies, and and what kind of input we can contribute to uh, to help uh, facilitate these uh, being issued. Great. And this is Don Mariska on behalf of the CSMFO Coaching Program, thanking you all for participating today. David Bean, for your uh, very useful presentation and your engagement of California, Washington, and Oregon uh, in these deliberations. It's very helpful to have that. And, and Craig, thank you for all you do for on a volunteer basis for CSMFO to help it move forward, including your work as a color commentator today. So please join us for future webinars. Let us know what topics you'd like to be covering in the follow-up survey. We're eager to be of service to you. Thanks, and have a great day.